So Jesus knew that in this new community he was creating, he was creating a new community. He knew that there would be conflict. He knew that there would be hurt. So this morning I want to consider uh, if there is a, I want to consider a practice that Jesus provides for us to help us navigate through the times when we will, not if, when we will find ourselves hurt or uh, dealing with conflict with someone in our community. The wisest man who ever lived, Jesus from Nazareth, he understood our reality and he understood that humans hurt humans. He understood that humans hurt and humans get hurt. And he understood that humans oftentimes don't deal with those hurts the way that he's designed us to deal with them. And so he's inviting us into a different way. So the title of the sermon this morning is that we're invited into something greater than bitterness. We're invited into something greater than bitterness. We're invited into a space of mercy that he provides for us. And um, he's inviting us to be a distinct people living in a, as a distinct people, a people of mercy. So I have a couple of points for us. The first one I want to consider is this. Jesus establishes mercy as a cornerstone of his followers. He establishes mercy as a cornerstone of his followers. Mercy, not giving what someone deserves. That's what mercy is. Someone deserves something and you not giving them what they deserve. That would be what mercy is. That's what God has done to us. And I want to allow the gospel of Matthew to be a a template to be a, uh, a source that teaches us about the mercy that we're invited to live within. And so you open up Matthew, and you don't get very far before you uh, get into some of Jesus' teachings. There's five discourses that we get in the, the Gospel of Matthew. Beautiful teachings on an eclectic a variety of things that he teaches us about, that Matthew uh, gathers and communicates to us. And, and the first teaching that, that we receive is this series, this... Um, three-chapter discourse around what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is on this mountain, this kind of hill, and he's overlooking these people, and he spends some time for three chapters. And he probably shared this over and over again with his disciples, but this content around the values of his followers that were different than the values of his day, and they are also different than the values of our day. And he begins to kind of drop these bombs. Like in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He says, Blessed, happy is the one who extends mercy. We're going to see this theme of mercy throughout our time together. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, in the same discourse, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He said, This is how life works. You love those who love you, and you hate those who hate you. That is the way of the kingdom of this world. And then Jesus goes on to say, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's distinct. That's other than in this world, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Like What he's saying there is, I want you to be a type of people that have received the mercy of God in such a way that you actually give it. It's not a dead end to you, but it becomes a conduit that you have been so influenced, so shaped by the mercy of God, that it actually changes how you interact with your enemies and those who persecute you. Then in Matthew 6, Jesus lays out this prayer, this profound prayer that I want to go back to over and over and over again because it is our lifeline and it becomes a training wheels in teaching us how to pray. It's the Lord's prayer, the Lord's pattern prayer. It's the Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. 
kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then he says this, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus was so aware that we were going to be hurt, we were going to have conflict with other people, and baked into the prayer that he offers to us is a reminder of extending the mercy of God to others as we've received it ourselves. So in the first discourse, in these few chapters, Jesus is teaching his followers about the mercy of God. And then you fast forward and you get into Matthew chapter 9, and we see that he's dining with tax collectors and sinners. And there's a, a ruckus that kind of begins to occur within the group here. We have these Pharisees and scribes that get frustrated at, at the fact that Jesus is actually hanging out with tax collectors and, and sinners. And then Jesus goes on to say, and he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Let's look at Matthew 9. I'll read it to you. Matthew chapter 9. It says this. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he says this, go and learn what this means. This is a profound statement. Go and learn what this means. He says, I desire Mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. What are disciples learning in real time? Something profound is they dine with these tax collectors and sinners and these religious leaders, and they're hearing from the one that they're following that he desires mercy that is distinct from the ways of this world. So we're seeing this mercy statement value of mercy getting baked into the people that Jesus is called to follow him. And then when you get into Matthew chapter 10, and it gets a little bit crazy, in Matthew chapter 10, which is seamlessly flowing out of the text that we just came out of in Matthew 9, in Matthew 10, we read this. And you can bypass this, and you can overlook the humanity that's happening within this text. In Matthew 10, verse 1, it says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew's brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And you just read that and just move on. But there is such tension. We've talked about this before. We'll talk about it again. There's such tension within these relationships. Simon Peter and Matthew, like that tension was real. And maybe you don't understand, so I'll try to explain it to you. Simon Peter was a blue-collar fisherman. His desire was just to make enough money to get through the day and the week. That was his reality. Matthew, on the other hand, was very different. He was a tax collector who who would take a hefty profit on top of the tax. That was his role. Everybody hated the tax collectors. And Jesus put Matthew together with the one, Matthew, he put Matthew uh, as the one who was oppressing Simon Peter, and he put them together in the same twelve. There's tension there. 
Another example would be the tension of Simon the Zealot and Matthew. If you can break out these two monikers, we have on one side, Simon was a zealot. And so what does that mean? Zealot is a right-wing Jewish insurgency group that conducted guerrilla-like terrorist attacks on unsuspecting Roman soldiers. So he hated Rome, Roman soldiers. He was a zealot against all things related to Rome. And Jesus puts him next to one who was on the payroll of Rome. And he puts them together. Matthew was on the payroll of Rome. It would be like Tucker Carlson, the right-wing conservative political commentary, commentator, uh, being, being roped side by side with Nancy Pelosi. I mean, like, hey, y'all work it out. Y'all figure it out. And you can imagine, like, we laugh about it, but in real time, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector are tied at the hip, committed to each other not because of their opinions, not because of politics, not because of hobby interests, not because of personalities, but because of their firm belief that Jesus was Lord. And that became the new standard for them, that Jesus was now their Lord, and they were relearning how to follow and function in this new way of life that was different than the way that they had been taught. And it was the compassion and the mercy of Jesus that began to become the bedrock of this new community. It was profound. It was life-altering. Tax collectors did not hang out with people like Simon the Zealot, but yet Jesus put these two people together. See, mercy is critical in the life of the Christian community. So we have a group of people who are following Jesus, and we have learned that mercy is at the bedrock of this new community. And Jesus knew that within that community, there was going to be conflict. So within the same gospel, Matthew begins to lay out to us, how do we deal with conflict? How did Simon the Zealot deal with Matthew the tax collector? What did that look like? How did they deal with conflict? And when they hurt one another, what did that look like? And we see that play out in Matthew 18, which leads to my second point, which is this. Jesus teaches us how to seek reconciliation amidst conflict. If we're honest, we don't engage conflict like Jesus teaches us. Think about how the way you were taught. We don't have enough, we don't have the space to, to be able to kind of flesh out what your parents taught you. Like, what did your parents teach you about things like this? Maybe a, a cold shoulder, or you're just supposed to suppress frustration you have, or you're passive-aggressive. Some of us are very good at being passive-aggressive, or we withhold. Our parents maybe didn't teach us uh, how to follow Jesus in this way, so maybe you blow up. Someone frustrates you, you just explode, or you suppress, suppress, and press, and then you explode, or you give the silent treatment. That always works very well, right? It reminds me of Pete Scazzaro, who gave this, gave this quote. He said that Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones, like, Jesus might be doing a work in your heart, but you still have habits that your parents taught you, that Jesus is teaching you how to relearn. And we see that here. Jesus is inviting us to have a humble, teachable heart, to hear how to follow him amidst conflict. I dare say that most of us don't know how to deal with conflict well. And Jesus teaches us another way. He teaches us an alternative way, a way of life. And we get that in Matthew chapter 18. 
Matthew 18 is brilliant. Actually, in 2020, we spent three weeks on Matthew 18. I'm about to spend 15 minutes on it. And so that's where we are. Go back for more details um, from a couple years ago. But there's three themes within Matthew 18. In the first third of the, the chapter, we hear that the, the greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. The greatest in the kingdom is one like a child. We see that uh, as the first third. In the middle third, we, we learn about how to deal with conflict on a really practical level, and we'll get into that in a minute. We'll get into all this in a minute. And in the third uh, portion of Matthew 18, we learn about what gospel forgiveness looks like. Jesus lays out this brilliance from the most brilliant man to ever live who knows you better than you know yourself. He teaches us another way. He teaches us a way that's beautiful. So we pick it up in Matthew chapter 18. And as we get into this chapter, or not this chapter, but these few verses, um, it comes right on the back end of Jesus giving this parable. And in the parable is a parable about uh, a man who had 100 sheep. And these 100 sheep, 99 are just chilling, they're good, but one runs off. And in the parable, the one who was the shepherd over all of the 100 leaves the 99 to chase after the one. And that becomes the, um, the, a natural flow into what we're about to hear, like Meaning this, that, that what God is like is what we're called to be like. Whether we go after each other like God goes after us. That's the, that's the bedrock of what we're hearing here. Again, a vision for mercy. So Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, we read this. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So we'll begin there. He starts here and he says, if your brother, so this is not talking about outside the church relationships. This is specifically related to people that are in the body of Christ. This is not related to outside, but specifically inside. So if someone within the family of God sins, or another way to translate that word sin would be er, wrongs or hurts you, this is how you respond. In other words, I don't care what you were taught growing up when someone wrongs you. This is how you do it. But Ernie, my personality, I get it. This is not easy. And frankly, I'm a harmony guy, and I would rather just pretend like everything's fine and avoid for a really long time while I'm raging with bitterness. Okay, that, would, that would be my cards on the table. But I'm learning that that's not the way of Jesus. I'm learning there's an alternative way that he's inviting us into. So he says, go to them. You approach them, and you talk to them. You go after them like God goes after you. And you go talk to them. You don't talk to your three friends to process it. You don't give the prayer requests. Pray for Linda. She's a real basket case, can I be honest with you? And uh, she's been a real strain wreck for me lately. And let me tell you why. And can we pray for her? Like, let's be a real easy southern way to deal with passive aggressive gossip slander uh, and put it in, in Christianese, right? And it's just ugly, nasty, gross. Galatians 6.1 tells us this, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in what? Can we read that together? Let's do that again. A spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Friends, the amount of times I've heard of pastors who've had affairs or adultery, the amount of times it's really easy to start judging. The amount of times that this text has become a mirror for me. God, is there any area in my own life? Instead of it being about judging, it's more about gentleness in my own heart. Lord, are there areas in my heart of sin? 
that I need to, maybe I'm 10 steps, 20 steps away, far away from that. But Lord, if there's any way, that's what the text is teaching us, a spirit of gentleness. And so in this text, we learn to deal with areas of sin or resentment or frustration, frustration with sensitivity and grace, not publicly. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase called The Message of this text, he says, if a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. And if he listens, you've made a friend. I love that. The simplicity of that. The tragedy is when we jump ship at this moment. We're quick to avoid difficult conflict, pain, difficulty, conflict, pain. And what we end up doing is we allow that bitterness to rise in such a way where we eventually just jump the community. We go to the next one. And in time, it starts out great. And over time, the same thing happens. And then we jump ship. And if you begin to see a theme in your life where that's consistent, maybe the community is not the problem. Maybe your resentment and your bitterness and your inability to navigate through these types of conversations maybe are the reason why you're not able to grow and flourish into maturity in the way that Jesus invites us into. There's a... Someone named Jean Veneer, and, and they have this thing called the three stages of life together. I mentioned this a couple years ago. Kind of walk through how community will eventually disappoint you, and you have a crossroads, and the way it plays out is this. The first stage in the life together is this honeymoon stage. And in this honeymoon stage, almost everyone finds their early days in a community ideal. It all seems perfect. They seem unable to see the drawbacks. They see only what is good. Everyone seems great exceptional, even angelic. It's the beginning stages of community. It's hopeful. Maybe this is going to be different. It's the idealized community, not the reality of community. So you start off in this honeymoon phase. But we all know if you've been married for any length of time, you know that eventually the honeymoon phase, it wears off into the next phase, which would be this, the letdown stage. This is a letdown period generally linked to a time of tiredness, a sense of loneliness or homesickness, some setback, a brush with authority, faults abound, folks get on your nerves, and you may even begin to believe that you are surrounded by hypocrites who either think only of rules, regulations, and structures, or are completely disorganized and incompetent. This is the phase when people tend to leave a community in search of an ideal one. Oftentimes, this is the moment we have an opportunity to grow we have an opportunity to push through. And I'll talk about abuse in the times where this, there's, there's, I'm talking about the norm, not the abnorm. And these spaces where we have a space to lean in and grow together, and at that moment we peace out. And the third stage, the most beautiful of the three stages, because the most beautiful years in marriage are in the honeymoon stages, but 30, 35, 40 years in, when you're learning to continue to grow and flourish together, that's where the beauty is found likewise here, the covenant stage. If the second phase is completed, folks enter into this phase, one of genuine commitments. In this phase, in this phase, members of the community are no longer saints or devils, but people, each a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, each growing and each with their own hope. It is at this time of realism that people put their roots down. The community is neither heaven nor hell, but planted firmly on earth. It's a space of growth, a space of maturity. When we push through, when we 
are willing to submit to Jesus enough to have these conversations. It produces Christ in us more deeply. See, the way of Jesus is not the way of peace, um, is a way of peacemaking, not peacekeeping. Peacekeeping is cheap. Peacekeeping is trying to put it under the rug and pretend like everything's fine and just ignoring. Peacemaking is having to go through potentially difficult conversations to come out on the other side stronger. Peacekeeping is fake. Peacemaking is real. So the goal is to approach this person and win them over. That would be the goal, which leads to the third point. That we're invited to relearn how to engage conflict and community. To relearn because someone taught you how to do it likely not the way of Jesus. So Jesus has, or, or was, Jesus was very clear out of the gate when we talked about the first part of Matthew 18. He, he talked about true greatness. True greatness isn't in pride or power or, or your resume. True greatness is in servanthood, which means that in a relationship where it's appropriate, that we choose to believe the best. We can quickly judge the motives of other people. We can, we can think that we're more like Jesus than we want to admit that we can see into the heart of a human being and we can know their motive and we can judge it accordingly. I mean, only Jesus can truly do that. We, we can take something like that and we can run with it, but Romans 12 tells us to live in harmony with one another. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 tells us that love believes all things. So we're taught, I'll say two ways that we engage this first step and then we move into the other two. Um, if that doesn't work. So the, the first two steps, if, if we are going to approach somebody who has hurt us, I want to submit two steps that we, we need to submit to. The first is this. Internally process why you feel the way you feel. Sometimes, well, I'll just say it like this, that um, is this about me or is this about them? Is this about me or them? And it, it's, it's important to take time to process that. Where am I? Why do I feel what I feel? Is it genuine? Is it self-inflicted? Maybe they're right. It's easy to jump to accuse, but it is wisdom to take the log out of your eye first. So in this step where we, as we're navigating through before we have a conversation with somebody, to check the log in our eye before we take out the speck in theirs. It behooves the person taking the initiative to make sure that the sin is not simply a matter of personal preference. Many times this will involve or resolve or, or clarify the situation. So we want to be introspective first. And second, after you've, after you've processed internally, we approach the individual in a place of humility, respect, and curiosity, not accusation or gossip. Because we might have saw some of this growing up, our parents engaged conflict, but they do it with their guns blazing, right? And again, not the way of Jesus. That's not what he's saying here. And a spirit of gentleness is what he's saying here. So we approach them and we ask, um, we, we begin to ask curious questions. I'm curious at why you didn't respond to my text about having lunch together. Is there something going on? Maybe work came up and you just missed, you forgot to respond to my text. And I begin to accuse, they don't even like me. Maybe we shouldn't be friends. What's wrong with, we begin like go down these paths, but we can be curious. I'm curious why you ghosted me. I'm curious why you haven't been coming to community group. You can like begin to be curious and not accuse and not fill them with shame, but be curious. That's the way of Jesus. This happened to me. I won't go into the details, but this happened to me in the last few weeks. A friend said something to me that hurt me. 
And I, I did these steps. I processed. I was like, what's, uh, what's going on under the surface? Is this me or is this them? I thought. I prayed about it. And then I reached out and we talked. And we navigated through it together. It's not a way of earning. That's not how I do things. It's not because I'm super spiritual. It's just because I want to follow Jesus. And Jesus taught us how to follow him in a really practical way when someone may have hurt us. It's our responsibility to learn from Jesus how to grow into maturity. It's the invitation to see our lives transformed by him. That's the first step. But what if that doesn't work? Jesus continues. Matthew 18, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And it goes on, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So that's step two is a quote from Deuteronomy 19. And the goal is to make, the point is to make sure you're being objective. So you bring somebody else just to make sure you're being objective. What is implied is that you've processed. What is implied is that you've prayed. What is implied is that you've talked to them and you've received counsel and then the follow-up is the next step. The goal is not to be right. The goal is to win that person back whether they're in sin or have sinned against you. The goal is always reconciliation, if possible. Not always possible, but that is the goal. And if this doesn't work, going by yourself, going with somebody else, and then it comes before the church. You tell the church, it's not the goal, but it sometimes has to happen. So the point is this, if someone is going to be harmful to the church community, the church community needs to know. And then eventually, I'll say for us, if we have this happen in our own community, that would happen and flesh out in our family gatherings, if that were to ever happen. And then lastly, it says you treat him like a tax collector and Gentile. It's interesting language, because again, Matthew was a tax collector. This word Gentile, in this context, is, is the idea of shunning somebody. That would be what the, the first century reader is providing. However, Jesus broke the taboo in how he treated Gentiles. How did Jesus treat tax collectors and Gentiles? The irony, again, is that Matthew was a tax collector, and he, uh, he was treated in a way of be- and being invited into the fold. Uh, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and, and though he was despised, Jesus invited him in. So Eugene Peterson says this about this text. He says, if he still won't listen, his paraphrase, tell the church, And if he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start over from scratch. Confront him with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. I believe there's an interesting balancing act that we find in this final step. It's a gospel of grace and it's healthy boundaries. It's treating them with graciousness in your heart, but also setting up boundaries that harmful people harm people, if that's the case. So Jesus' vision for community is grounded in reality. He understands that we're going to hurt one another, and his invitation is to bring reconciliation within those moments because we are a people of mercy. So before I close and give a last story, I know that this has been weaponized. I know this text that we've just read has been weaponized in different ways. On one side, it's, it's cruelty. Some people have used this in a way that's, that's cruel, in a way that's uh, unkind, a, uh, because of a selfish grievance or church politics, and they've used this in a way that's been brutal. And maybe you know somebody that's experienced that. And on the other side, 
the other extreme would be that people have just ignored this and embraced compromise, not engaging sin, not engaging when, when uh, someone is harmed by another. See, bitterness can be destructive in the people of God and the church. Sin will never lead to human flourishing. And when we leave sin undealt uh, with, it becomes the new standard in the church. And so this matters. So if someone comes to mind as we're reading through this, I invite you to take these steps and pray. This is the way of Jesus. And I'll close with this story. So seamlessly after this teaching, which had to have been difficult, especially for Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, probably were frustrated at each other all the time. We see this story as the, as the chapter ends. And it, and it begins with Peter asking, so how often do I forgive my brother? Like seven times? Because in that day, three times was a lot. And he's like, seven times? Maybe a little bit more? And then Jesus says, no, 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 not seven. Seven times 70. Or 77 times. It's hyperbole. It's, uh, it's, don't get lost in the literal nature of it. It's, it's this idea of seven is complete. And so there is no limit to our forgiveness. There is no place for keeping a tally with forgiveness. If you're counting, then you're not forgiving. And then he goes on and he shares this story about this, this king. So this is king and he wants to settle accounts. This king was very wealthy. He was very influential and he'd given out a lot of debts to a lot of different people to help them out. And it came time where he needed payments on the debts. And he went to this first individual who had a ton of debt. And, I mean, to break it down, it was 10,000 uh, talents, which is just a significant amount of debt. One denarii is $120 a day's wage. A talent was equivalent to 6,000 denarii. So you break that up, 6,000 times 120, that's $720,000 in our currency today. And this dude had 10,000 talents. So do the math, carry the one. That's $7.2 billion that this guy owed the king. And so he comes before the king, and he's, the king says, you, you need to pay up. And the dude's like, I, I, I can't. I have no ability to do it. And they go back and forth, and he begins to plead with the king, have mercy upon me. Have compassion on me. And the king resolved his debt. He dealt with the debt. He forgave his debt. And so the man who was forgiven a ridiculous amount of money went and found somebody who owed him a much smaller amount of money. The equivalent would be um, 100 denarii, which was about $12,000. And he asked this servant to pay him up, pay up. And the dude, same language Jesus uses in this parable. He says, I don't have the money. I can't. He begins to plead with them. And the, and the dude does not show mercy to this guy. He rages against this guy. He wants to throw this guy into prison. And the king begins to hear about the guy who he just forgave a ridiculous debt of. And he calls for the guy and he ends up putting him in prison. And this, this phrase at the very end of this parable, Jesus says, Shouldn't you have mercy as you have received mercy? Shouldn't you extend mercy because you've received mercy? And then finally in 1835, it says this, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. My friends, there's something greater than bitterness. There's an invitation of mercy. There's times when you may forgive but will never be able to reconcile. 
There's certain relationships with family or other people where abuse has occurred or emotional or physical or other things where you will never be able to reconcile with that person. But for your own sanity and heart's sake, you can move to the place eventually of extending mercy, though you may not ever find an ability to reconcile with them. The invitation of Jesus is to be a people of mercy. So we have, we have groups. We have Bible studies. We have community groups. We have all of these spaces that we want to invite you into. We want to invite you to, to sign up for. And we recognize that we will hurt each other. And Jesus invites us into the space of mercy. So friends, I extend it to you. I humbly extend this vision of community to you. This vision of humility, this vision of mercy, that's counter to this world, but it makes us distinct as a people who navigate through the pains of life and hurt and difficulty to know that we've received ridiculous mercy. And in return, we learn to grow in extending it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for texts like these, not, not because they're easy, because they're not. Boy, it would be great to just skip out this Sunday morning. But it is so good for us to hear how to follow you, how to live in this world, how to find life in you, even if it grates against our personality, even if it grates against the way we've been taught. It's a better way. This is the way of abundant life that you offer to us, and I pray you teach us to be humble and receive your mercy and your care. We'd be people who extend it. In Jesus' name, amen.